Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, one of the NFL's oldest franchises began right here in Appalachia, in Portsmouth, Ohio. You literally cannot tell the, the history of the Detroit Lions without factoring in the, the Portsmouth Spartans team. And for some workers in the natural gas industry, unregulated radioactive waste is part of the job. Quote, you're saturated in it, your hands are covered in it, the denim of your uniform would hold it, and the moisture would soak right through your underclothes and into your skin. We also revisit one of our most popular stories from 2022. It's all about Appalachia's contribution to America's great pizza wars. A couple slices and and watch the barges and and look at the uh, architecture on the island. There's no finer way to, to spend a lunch hour or an evening in Wheeling than some DeCarlo's on the river. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Rural hospitals across Appalachia have been struggling. Some have closed down altogether, while others are shrinking the number of services they provide. People wait for months and then have to drive hours just to get to specialists. And it's particularly bad for pregnant women and new mothers. Over the summer, we learned about maternal health care deserts from a reporter in western North Carolina. But this is a problem across Appalachia. West Virginia recently lost a hospital birthing center. In a region where it's already hard for mothers to obtain health care, these closures make the critical shortage of care for mothers and infants even worse. West Virginia public broadcasting reporter Amelia Nicely investigated and brings us this story. In 2015, Nicole Nichols was pregnant with her third, a little girl. It was a pregnancy with multiple high-risk complications. At the time, she lived in Looneyville, a small community in rural Roan County. She lived about 19 miles from the county's hospital. But that year and into the next, she had to drive to a hospital in Charleston for checkups, which is an hour each way. I had to go just about every week. Um, Toward the end, I had to go two to three times a week for regular non-stress tests and, um, you know, all the stuff like that because I had a pretty rough pregnancy with her. West Virginia is facing a shortage of obstetricians and places for them to work. Only 18 of its 55 counties have hospital birthing centers. Roan County is located in the center of the state, an area that is a desert for OBGYNs. Its local hospital once had a labor and delivery unit, but it closed in 2006. Nichols went into early labor multiple times, which brings risks for mom and baby. I was full panic mode in labor very early, was worried that I was going to lose her. That really put her at risk having to travel an hour, hour and a half to get that labor stopped because had I not made it there in time, I don't know where she would be. West Virginia has 20 birthing hospitals after St. Mary's Hospital in Huntington closed its labor and delivery unit in November. The state has one freestanding birth center. Nationwide, birthing saw a slight increase in 2021 for the first time in seven years. But the overall drop in births, coupled with West Virginia's aging and declining population, have made it difficult to sustain birthing centers. The shortage means there's a declining number of places for OBGYNs to work. And all this leads to poor outcomes for mothers and babies, according to Dr. Angela Cherry. She's a family medicine physician in Harpers Ferry. If there's not a birthing center there, moms are having to drive more than 30 minutes to to a birthing center, um, which may limit the amount of care that they get even prior to delivery. So they are just increased risk of having um, more complications um, if they have less prenatal care. West Virginia has some of the country's worst birthing outcomes, including its rate of infant deaths and preterm births, which can cause a number of serious complications like breathing problems or heart issues. The state is also having an increase of mothers dying during childbirth, which is connected to the state's drug epidemic. Dr. Cherry presented these concerns to lawmakers in November during legislative interims. So what we've seen is those women just not getting care. West Virginia isn't the only state struggling. There's a national shortage of OBGYNs. 
And Dr. Cherry said the state's rural towns struggle to attract OBGYNs because they're too far from hospitals and lack local economy. The state could also struggle to recruit OBGYNs following its recent abortion law, which is one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country. State Senator Hannah Gefford, a Democrat from Berkeley, said her area is struggling to recruit OBGYNs. During a presentation on maternal health, Gefford asked Dr. David Didden, who works for the state office of maternal, child, and family health, if the abortion law would further impact recruitment. Here's his response. I think we can send the message that um, we are uh, in support of reproductive health uh, for women um, and that uh, this is a a promising place um, to come and practice medicine. But it's a it's it's a tough sell. Uh, And it's not just in in medicine. We're going to continue to uh, to try to establish best practices and standards of care. And um, I hope we'll be able to convince some more providers that uh, that this is a good place to practice medicine. Nichols' daughter is now six years old and thriving, and the family has moved from Roan County. She hopes state leaders will focus on bringing OBGYNs to rural areas, as she knows other mothers from Roan who have struggled to get to necessary appointments for mother and baby due to travel distance, money, and transportation challenges. For people that can't get to Charleston, it's a lot easier for them to find a ride that's, you know, 10 to 20 minutes compared to an hour, hour and a half. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Amelia Nicely in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. The coal industry is employing fewer people, even with the recent uptick in production. And yet, black lung disease continues to be epidemic across Appalachia's coal communities. The deadly and incurable disease is affecting more and more younger miners compared to previous generations. Activists and now members of Congress have called for the Federal Mine Safety Agency to shift its standards to better protect workers. But there's still no word on when new regulations may come. Justin Hicks with the Ohio Valley Resource reports. Okay, so what do you want to see? Here at the University of Kentucky, mining professor Stephen Schaefrink shows me a device designed to keep coal miners safe. It looks sort of like a cordless drill battery, attached to a long rubber tube. He presses a button to power it up, and... And so it just does this all day. All day. Yeah, you can feel it vibrates. The little vibrating air pump would go on a miner's work belt, and the tube clips to a shirt collar. And throughout a day working in a coal mine, it sucks the air through the tube like a straw. The machine collects teeny tiny pieces of dust on a thin paper filter. That gets sent off to a special lab. We're really trying to sample the things that would get past your body's regular defenses so that they get into your lungs. Monitoring these tiny dust particles is really important for the health of mine workers. Some of it contains silica, a mineral that can cause a deadly and incurable lung disease called black lung. In fact, monitoring particulates is so important to miner health, the machines are made to be tamper-proof, so nobody can fudge the results. Uh, If you do block it, see, the pump gets mad. The Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, is in charge of monitoring silica dust levels. It can issue fines to mining companies that have too much silica in the air. But advocates say the allowable amount of silica dust needs to be lower. I think they really need to come down on the companies more and stricter. That's Vonda Robinson, vice president of the National Black Lung Association. She's watched her husband and scores of younger miners contract black lung, Now she's pushing for MSHA to tighten up the silica standards, which are higher for miners than any other workers in the U.S. It feels like they're just forgot about. MSHA has repeatedly promised to lower the silica threshold since the 90s, but somehow it's still never materialized. And, you know, here we're in an epidemic. When are we finally going to get a breakthrough and get something done? Just last week, Democratic senators from coal mining states like West Virginia and Pennsylvania co-signed a letter to the agency. They asked why there's still no regulation, even though they were promised a change earlier this year. MSHA Assistant Secretary Chris Williamson responded to the letter, essentially repeating what he told the Ohio Valley Resource last month in an interview. You know, there's two things I can say. It's absolutely a top priority, but, you know, it's also got to be, it's a complex health rule, so it's got to be done correctly, too. 
Williamson said he's not allowed to give any details on when miners can expect a new rule or what might be in it. However, he pointed out that MSHA did create initiatives this year to increase enforcement of existing silica standards. Emily Sarver researches mine safety at Virginia Tech University, and she says in preparation for when or if a new rule finally does come out, people like her are working on technology to support it. But they're still not able to report silica dust in real time. Just because we're not there on real-time silica technology, I don't think that we either throw up our hands and say we can't protect people or that we say, well, we're just not going to mine underground anymore. There are ways to still protect people. And while the wait for a new silica standard drags on, Vonda Robinson with the Black Lung Association says there's other things the government can do. Things like pass bills that would help miners who already have black lung. But she still really wants to see a silica standard finally come to fruition. And if we get this, this will be great. That'll be another milestone that we've done and we can move on to something else. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Justin Hicks. Coal isn't the only industry that affects workers' health. So does natural gas. The industry has surged in Appalachia this century, as fracking has revolutionized how drillers get natural gas. But some of the materials used in fracking are radioactive, and they're not always regulated. Investigative reporter Justin Noble has covered the natural gas industry from Louisiana to northern Appalachia. He has a new story for Smog Blog, that looks at how workers at a facility in eastern Ohio are exposed to radioactive oil-filled waste. I asked Noble about this new story and how it grew out of his previous work. It really all started in Appalachia. It started at one of the early tree sits to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. My partner and I, we were living in New Orleans for some time, and I was writing a lot about petrochemical related issues, oil and gas issues, Cancer Alley. And so when we moved up to the Northeast, we live now in upstate New York, I wanted to try and learn about an issue in this area. You know, I wasn't, I was no longer in petrochemical, Cancer Alley, Louisiana. I was in a new place. I wanted to learn. And the big environmental issue in this area was the fracking of the Marcellus and Utica shales. And so I set up a trip that I called Hitchhiking an Energy Rush, where I put together a trip that led me from resistance against pipelines all through the machinery of oil and gas. So, you know, starting with taking a train, I took a train down from where I'm at through New York City, down to Virginia, up into the mountains, and then had people tour me around there, took me to the tree sit where Nutty at that point was up in the trees, right at that beautiful, uh, crest, the ridgeline right there between Virginia and West Virginia, and followed that that type of touring all the way through Pennsylvania, connecting with people with the group Physicians for Social Responsibility. Um, they took me up into Dimmick area, northeastern Pennsylvania, and then eventually on across to southwestern Pennsylvania and Ohio. So much around farming. So many of my stops were staying with farmers who suddenly had this outrageous infrastructure pop up in the middle of the night. Um, But it was on the last day of that trip that I learned that in Ohio, a liquid de-icing product that had a very high radioactive signature and was drawn from oil field brine was being used on roads and was even being sold in stores. And, And that little kernel of knowledge led me down a research pathway that like five years hence, is still going. It's led to a a number of big um, magazine or investigative site stories, and now this book that I'm working on, too. Would you mind reading that lead from your, your latest story? As Bill Torbett and his colleagues went about their work handling the sloppy radioactive detritus of oil fields in a cavernous building in eastern Ohio, their skin and clothing often became smothered in sludge. Waste was splattered on the floor and walls, even around the electrical panels. At the end of their shifts, they typically left their uniforms in the company washing machine, which didn't always work, and left their sludge cake boots and hard hats in the company locker room. But when the men arrived home after a long day, the job came with them too. Quote, we were literally ankle deep in sludge and a lot of times knee deep in different spots. All that is dripping down on you, 
says Torbett, a 51-year-old former employee of Austin Master Services, a radioactive oil field waste facility in Martins Ferry, Ohio. Quote, you're saturated in it. Your hands are covered in it. The denim of your uniform would hold it and the moisture would soak right through your underclothes and into your skin. How wet? Torbett says, like if you got caught outside in the rain without an umbrella, soaking wet. In fact, so alarming are the conditions at Austin Master and so lax is the oversight that workers have taken things into their own hands. In one case, a second former worker has covertly passed along their dirty boots, hard hat, and headlamp for independent radiological analysis. The levels of the radioactive element radium found in the sludge on this worker's boots were about 15 times federal cleanup limits for the nation's worst toxic waste sites. And yet, Austin Master appeared to keep workers in the dark about what they were handling. Quote, they really didn't tell me the gist of the material. I just knew it came from frac sites, according to Torbett, who worked at the facility from November 2021 to February 2022. Quote, there was no discussion of the material and its radioactivity. That excerpt, just that beginning of that story, like makes me squirm, but it goes a lot deeper than skin deep. So how does oil-filled radioactivity affect people who work in the natural gas industry? Essentially, a lot more comes to the surface at a well than just oil and gas. There's an incredible amount of waste And the primary form is something the industry refers to as brine. Well, despite this innocent sounding name, brine is an extraordinarily salty liquid. The salt alone is toxic. There's also carcinogens like benzenes. And then we have a lot of heavy metals and we happen to have the heavy metal radium. Radium is a radioactive metal and it's a really dangerous one. It's regarded by the medical community as a bone seeker. When radium is accidentally inhaled or ingested, your body confuses it for calcium and a portion of it will end up being stored in your bones. The problem there is you've now incorporated a radioactive element into your bones, into your skeleton, where it then does what radioactive elements do. It fires off radiation And radiation is what can, in a variety of ways, damage the cells, the human machinery around it. On the outside of your skin, we have some protection from certain types of radiation. But in the inner space of your body, the intimate space with all the soft tissue, there's really no protection. And so radiation can be particularly damaging when it's inside of you. So pulling back out now, brine is filled with radium. And the radium levels are actually really, really high. So um, it is being sloshed around, truck spill, and there's a variety of ways contamination can happen. But even more concerning from a worker standpoint is the sludge that will form in the bottom of tanks and trucks that hold brine. They don't really just have liquid in them, which will be taken off into what's called an injection well, but they have a sludge. And it's a human worker who's going to have to go and clean out that sludge. Likewise, at the wellhead, the brine tanks will accumulate a sludge also. And it's a human worker who is going to go and clean out that sludge. And this is where we start to really get into the space where poor policy decades ago meets living human beings in the present because oil field waste, whether it's the brine or whether it's the sludge, has received this glorious exemption going back to 1980. Uh, And the exemption essentially says, even though we know there's a lot of hazardous constituents in oil field waste, we're going to label it non-hazardous. And so despite there have been hazardous properties. Oil field waste gets this tremendous pass that has very, very far-reaching ramifications. It's labeled as non-hazardous. And so often these workers who are cleaning out these tanks have no idea they're dealing with a hazardous material, have no idea they're dealing with a radioactive material. And the final note here, Mason, is there is so much brine, there is so much sludge being produced in the Marcellus, in the Utica, across northern Appalachia, that you have to have this kind of elaborate system to deal with it, except the rules are not elaborate. The rules are scanty. And so what has happened is this really fly-by-night 
kind of ramshackle apparatus of dealing with the sludge. It's brought to these facilities called oil field waste treatment plants. And what they're trying to do is lower the radioactive signature enough so this waste, instead of having to be hauled out west to these very expensive radioactive waste disposal sites, can now go to a local landfill. This process should be illegal. It's a massive scam, and it enables human workers to have intimate and repeated contact with this highly radioactive waste. I'm speaking with reporter Justin Noble about his investigation of radioactivity in Appalachia's oil and gas industry. We'll hear more after this break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm speaking with reporter Justin Noble. His recent story for DSmog blog investigates the lack of protections for workers dealing with radioactive materials in Appalachia's fracking industry. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with a pattern that exists in the coal industry where when the coal industry has a downturn, that's when a lot of miners, um, that's when like black lung patterns pick up because a lot of miners will, will stay in the mines until they get laid off and they don't seek medical treatment until then. And then once the industry revs up again, that all kind of goes out the window during the next boom cycle. And I think I would... I would suggest we're probably in a boom cycle with oil and gas right now. What's it look like in our current moment? Are there changes happening here? I I think the unfortunate thing about what is happening right now is that we are being asked to kind of look the other way when unusual or suspect cancer clusters emerge in oil and gas country. We are being asked Uh, or these workers that I'm describing are being asked to just not ask questions. You're doing work, you're um, helping the economy and you're making money. Just don't ask, don't ask what's in the waste. Just get in there and shovel this sludge and we'll give you your paycheck. If you just tell us that you're not telling us the full picture because the full picture is we need this oil and gas. uh, But right now we are doing it so shoddily, so sloppily, we're digging it out in such a sloppy, haphazard manner. We're processing it. We're dealing with the waste in such a sloppy manner that many of you are going to get really sick. I'm not talking about like cancer 50 years later. I'm talking about people dying within the next five to 10 years. One of my first worker contacts as a journalist was a brine hauler named Randy Moyer, He described to me one situation as I was talking about these tanks. They have sludge. So Randy would have to go into these tanks with a shovel and a squeegee. No PPE. Absolutely no PPE. People would take their shirts off because it was so hot inside a tank in an enclosed space. And Randy said that he had a rope tied around him. So if he passed out or blacked out, someone, a coworker, could drag him out of the tank. Randy developed these horrendous weird rashes. He had swellings that various parts of his body would swell up, his feet, his hands, his genitals. And unfortunately, earlier this year, Randy Moyer, who was in his 40s, a father, um, he passed away. So these are real issues. Was it the radioactivity that led to Randy's death? Or was it the really toxic cocktail of chemicals associated with fracking that he was likely exposed to in cleaning out some of these tanks. We don't know because there wasn't a thorough analysis done. But that calculus is not being taken in to how oil and gas is talked about in this country. And so there is a deception happening. The deception is that there will be sickness. There will be death. It will happen in the communities where oil and gas is extracted. It will happen in communities where the waste is processed. And it will happen to the workers. But, but it's an unfair analysis right now because that is not being taken into account 
when we talk about oil and gas. It's disturbing and infuriating. And and your your work on this subject is disturbing and infuriating. What's this look like for pipeline workers? Natural gas has radon in it. Oil and gas industry did not create radon. Radon is part of the ra- natural radioactive decay process. There's other radioactive elements deep in the earth, things like uranium and thorium. As they decay, they eventually lead to radon, and radon is a gas, it comes up at the surface and it can pool in places that kind of form like a cap over the surface, such as a house. You know, you put a house down, you're inherently trapping radon, especially if you're in an area that has high radon. So radon, it makes sense that as we pull this gas out of the ground, it's going to have some of this radioactive gas radon as well. And it does. Natural gas has radon and the radon cannot really be removed So it's there going through the natural gas system. Radon decays pretty quickly, which means it will shoot off a bit of radiation and literally become another element. And the other elements radon becomes are solids. They're still radioactive, but they're solids. And so they settle out in the natural gas system and they'll get stuck just like in your uh, plumbing or piping below your sink. The solids, the gunk kind of get stuck in corners, in valves and pumps and filters in places where speed slows or velocity changes. So that's exactly where you're going to be settling out radioactive solids in the natural gas pipeline system. And you're going to be settling out a radioactive form of lead and polonium, which is one of the most dangerous substances on the planet. And this material has to be cleaned out of the pipeline system. And that work is being done by what the industry refers to as piggers. How often they're cleaned, how they're cleaned, these are things that are very hard to learn about because there's no set standard on this. This is kind of like a shadow industry happening within the industry which is this process of cleaning the radioactive sludge out of natural gas pipelines. Now, I have spoken to some workers. They've described to me the process. It's horrendous. It does not take into account fully their health and safety, and it is really sloppy. And they use these little robotic moles to pull the sludge out of the pipeline. Human workers then have to spray it off, wrap it up in this tarp, chuck it in a barrel in the back of a truck and drive it to this radioactive waste disposal site in the West Texas desert. But how often is this radioactive sludge that's really kind of shadow and not many people know about being dumped here and there? How often is it being handled in an even less appropriate way than how I just described? That's something I'm still tunneling into. Also, any place where you have emissions along the natural gas pipeline system, such as a compressor station, We do believe, and the industry science tells us this, that we're also going to have radioactivity being emitted. Wow. So you've, I mean, so your investigations are already revealing all this information. Um, That's that's new to me, even as someone who reads energy news daily. Um, But how does this all going to fit into the book you're working on? The book is a chance for me to pull everything I have together and I have a lot at this point, Mason. There's a lot that I haven't been able to put out in these different investigative stories or the Rolling Stone story. There's a lot that really won't hit home for readers or listeners until it's part of a book. The beauty of the book is it will all be together in a package and it will make it a lot more powerful. And there's things that I could like tell you right now and they would just fall flat, but they're actually monumental things. But you need to follow my lead and do some of the reading I did and and then get to that reveal. And then you'll be like, oh my goodness, this is outrageous. So the book is a chance to do that. And there's a pathway of information I'm going to present And there's absolutely legal ramifications on some of this material, because I think on a number of different fronts, even according to their own rules, many of which they helped write, the industry is operating outside the bounds of them. uh, And I think there'll be massive lawsuits around the country once it's known and presented. Justin Noble, thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, Mason. That's reporter Justin Noble. He's working on a book about America's oil and gas industry. 
You can read his latest investigation at DSmog blog. We'll post a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Poet Frank X. Walker tells a story. When he looked up the word Appalachia in a dictionary 30 years ago, he saw it defined with the phrase, the white residents of the Appalachian Mountains. As a man of color, he says that shook him. So Walker coined a new term with his writing group, Afrolatcha. He wanted to show readers that our region is made up of more than one race. Frank X. Walker's latest work is a children's book called A is for Afrolatcha. It uses the alphabet to center people of color who grew up in Appalachia. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas spoke to Walker about poetry and his new book. I'm no no stranger to literary pursuits, but I struggle with poetry. As a person who admits that they can't, that they struggle with poetry, help me. Tell me what I'm missing or, or tell me what I need to know that'll make it clearer for me. Well, I don't know if I can make it clearer. I can make you feel uh, less responsible. You know, I, I think the challenge of poetry is that a lot of other people, and not all poets, have, have given poetry a bad reputation uh, because of the way it was taught in schools. If, if, if your first introduction to poetry is through a Shakespearean sonnet and you're 15 years old, and everything about Elizabethan England is so it's so far away from your world uh, versus your family and where you live and how you live and and your diction and your language uh, and your culture and your music. If none of that is in poetry when it's introduced to you, why would it not feel like a foreign concept? Poetry, I want to write poems that my grandmother might enjoy even my father with an eighth grade education, that, that he would hear these words and not have to run to a dictionary or feel left out or even be mystified by the fact that he doesn't recognize the people being talked about, the places being talked about. But if he, hear, if he hears that work and it's in the form of a poem and it sounds just like some of his favorite music on the radio without the music, then he's not lost. You know, I think if you think of poetry, uh, as a cousin to to say country music or the blues, and you get this, and you enjoy those two art forms, and you can enjoy poetry, and the only difference might be the subject matter. Explain to me the genesis of roots of Afrolatcha. Uh, you're credited with coining that term, uh, but also the Afrolatchian poets, and and where did all that start? Right here in Lexington. Um, about 1991, I had a group of friends who were meeting once a week, sharing our brand new poetry only with each other. And we also started to, to go to public events. And we went to an event uh, that was credited with being showcasing the best uh, writers from Appalachia. And, you know, we all enjoyed the event. And I came home and I looked up the definition of Appalachia. Uh, and in my dictionary in 1991, the definition of Appalachia said white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. Mm. And it shook me because I immediately thought, well, well, what are you if you aren't white? If it's just based on the proximity to those mountains. And uh, so I, I wrote a poem that, that kind of teased out that question at the very end of the poem. I, I wrote the line, imagine being an Afrolatchian poet. And I brought it back to my group the next week to share. And I fell in love with the word uh, and decided the same evening to name ourselves. We'd been meeting for about a year, unnamed and not even thinking of ourselves as a group. But we decided at that moment that there was something about the word that was electric enough to make us feel something. And so we named ourselves the Afrolatchian Poets. And about 10 years later, the dictionary, you know, based on the amount of use that was happening with the word in the region, uh, picked it up and decided it was a, a legitimate word. Why was it important for you to develop a children's book? When you consider 
luminaries like Booker T. Washington and even the John Henry stories or Henry Louis Gates, uh, you know, Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, Bill Withers, they're always discussed separate from the space they come from. People almost never connect them to, to the region of Appalachia. Um, so what I wanted to do was, was do a children's book that also educated the people reading to those children. Because most of the stuff in the book, the children who might read these books, their parents don't know this information either. One of the most important parts of the book is the glossary, the five pages of glossary that comes at the end of the, the alphabet. And it gives you a brief history of all the significant figures and places uh, and people that make up uh, what I consider Afrolatchet. Who do you want to read the book? Grandmothers, parents, high school students, middle school students, uh, you know, young people who are literate enough to read on their own, um, and even people who just enjoy beautiful images to, to flip through the book and enjoy the images uh, and then ask questions of whoever's there with you. You know, I think, I hope it's a, a multi-generational experience. You know, every family should own one of these books, in my opinion. Frank X. Walker was the first African-American writer to be named Kentucky Poet Laureate. He's the founding editor of Pluck, the Journal of Afro-Latin Arts and Culture, and is a professor at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Appalachia's connection to professional football has always been a little loose. Lots of pro players have come out of Appalachia, but depending on how you view regional boundaries, there's really only one Appalachian NFL team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, who have a pretty big following here in the region. But it turns out at least one other professional team has Appalachian DNA, the Detroit Lions. That franchise began as the Portsmouth Spartans in Portsmouth, Ohio, just across the river from Kentucky. Sports fan and WVPB reporter Randy Oey has this story. The football chatter is palpable at the historic Stadium Lunch Tavern in Portsmouth, Ohio. It's a football Sunday in December, and there's memorabilia from two NFL franchises on display. The crowd has come from nearby Municipal Stadium, where the infamous Iron Man game was played. In that contest, the NFL's 1932 Portsmouth Spartans played the same 11 men the entire game and shut out their bitter rivals, the Green Bay Packers, 19 to nothing. That championship game paved the way into dividing the NFL into two divisions, leading to what we now call Super Bowls. We are off and running as another episode of Detroit City of Champions. I'm Detroit Peter sports Flanagan. historian Charles Avison has brought his podcast, Detroit the City of Champions, to Portsmouth for a weekend of dedications and remembrances. Portsmouth's NFL franchise became the Detroit Lions, which won the 1935 NFL championship. Avison says the 12 or so Spartans turned Lions who played in both championships deserve to be honored as local football heroes. And you literally cannot tell the, the history of the Detroit Lions without factoring in who the Portsmouth, the, the Portsmouth Spartans team. It wasn't like some random team name that was transferred and they transferred a bunch of equipment in the back of a wagon. This was the players from Portsmouth came to Detroit and they brought with them the rivalries that had been built in Portsmouth. Players like the legendary Jim Thorpe and Dutch Clark. To remember the Iron Man game and honor those leather helmet-wearing legends, I was part of a volunteer group that raised the funds needed to replace the old crumbling sign that welcomes visitors to the still-in-operation Portsmouth Municipal Stadium. Professor Drew Fight, director of the Center for Public History at Portsmouth Shawnee State University, has worked tirelessly to ensure the Iron Man game and the Spartans turn lions who played in it won't be forgotten. Portsmouth. Uh, really is a football community. It has a really, really rich history. Its history is tied in with the early days of the NFL. And everybody loves the NFL today. And just the fact that Portsmouth has such a fantastic team that uh, really went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Green Bay Packers and other greats of the time, you know, cherishing this history and taking care of our stadium here. The walls of Portsmouth native Will Malt's restaurant, the Scioto River, are covered with Spartan team pictures and memorabilia. 
Malt is one of many here thrilled with having a weekend of memories turned into monuments. I'm overwhelmed. I, I, I love the Portsmouth Spartans and I love the current Detroit Lions, which were the Portsmouth Spartans. We have great camaraderie and great friends from Detroit and we enjoy ourselves when we get together. Also making the trip in from Detroit is 82-year-old Tom Urich. In 1985, as a Motor City radio reporter, Urich covered the 1935 Lions team's 50th anniversary reunion, where a few of the old converted Spartan players felt slighted that the Portsmouth Connection legacy to the city of champs was forgotten. Urich promised them then he'd make that right. 88 years later, we're not just dedicating a new sign this weekend, but putting up plaques honoring those players in Tom Urich's name. I told him I would do everything I could. It brings a tear to my eye a little bit to, to help to help uh, Portsmouth know that they were included in the uh, Hall of or in the City of Champions. And now it's taken 88 years, but it's now officially Portsmouth is part of the city of the greatest sports situation ever known. Drew Fight and I agree, without Tom Urich's tenacity, none of this weekend's small-town, big-emotion events would have happened. He felt that uh, the story of Portsmouth really had, had not gotten the attention that they deserved, and that was what the, the old Spartan players felt as well. And so Tom made them a promise years and years ago that he would do what he could to help keep this history alive, and we're here today to make that, make that happen. The Ironman game was played on December 4, 1932. The event celebrates its 90th anniversary. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yowie in Portsmouth, Ohio. Finally, last week we featured a collection of stories from 2022 that highlighted the many kinds of topics we share here on Inside Appalachia. Producer Bill Lynch put the list together, but flagged one story in particular we couldn't fit. Zach Harold's story about Ohio Valley cuisine, specifically DiCarlo's famous pizza in Wheeling, West Virginia. Can I get a six cut with pepperoni? You want a pepperoni on it? Yes. Have a name? Zach. If you need some reading material while waiting on your lunch at DiCarlo's famous pizza in downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, might I suggest the big plaque just left of the front door? It tells the whole history of Ohio Valley Pizza, a regional cuisine with a story that begins just up the road in Steubenville, Ohio, in the late 1800s. That's when the DiCarlos left their home in Sora, Italy, to come to the United States. They opened a little grocery store to serve their fellow immigrants. The store became renowned for its Italian bread, which got so popular the family converted the whole business to a bakery, making bread as well as cakes, donuts, and cookies. Then came World War II. Primo De Carlo found himself stationed in his ancestral homeland, and it was there he discovered a delicacy called pizza. Primo returned home determined to get in the pizza business. He borrowed some cookie sheets from the bakery, as well as the family bread dough recipe, and started tinkering. But the De Carlos ran into a problem. They didn't have a pizza oven. By the time the crust was as crispy as Primo liked, the cheese on top was burned. So he just added the cheese after it came out of the oven. Cold cheese on a hot crust. The family had single-handedly, and more or less accidentally, created a brand new kind of pizza that would eventually take the region by storm. It would come to be known as Ohio Valley Pizza or Wheeling Pizza, but more often than not, it would be called DiCarlo's Pizza. Hold on, I think my order's up. It's us. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Anyway, Primo opened the first store in Steubenville in 1945. Then he and his kid brother Galdo opened another store in downtown Wheeling four years later. It's only expanded from there. There are now DeCarlo's franchises and imitators all over Ohio and West Virginia, and their numbers are increasing by the day. There's even a location in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina now. The DiCarlo family hopes their cold cheese pizza will soon take its place in the pantheon of American pizza styles, alongside New York's big floppy slices, Chicago's deep dish, and Detroit's thick crusts. But here's the thing. According to locals, not all DiCarlo's are selling the same pizza. 
There are subtle differences in the crust, the sauce, the cheese. So if Ohio Valley Pizza is about to go national, which is the real deal? I decided to hit the road to find out, you know, for journalism. I came to the downtown location at the suggestion of local journalist Jeremy Morris. He wrote a pretty extensive history of the Ohio Valley pizza phenomenon for the website Weedlunk. We'll go grab a, a couple slices and, and watch the barges and, and look at the uh, architecture on the island. There's no finer way to, to spend a lunch hour or an evening in Wheeling than some DiCarlo's on the river. So that's exactly what I did. Took my pizza down to the riverfront where, unfortunately for radio, some guys were power washing the sidewalks. It was here I took my first bite, and it was revelatory. The crust was way crispier than I expected. You could still see the individual shreds of cold cheese. That cheese was salty and chewy, calling attention to itself in a way that melted cheese just never does. My pizza research was only beginning, though. Another name that comes up quite often when you're discussing Ohio Valley pizza is Patsy's in Elm Grove. I got Wheeling native Patrick Yoho to give me the scoop on this place. I met up with him as he waited on slices in the parking lot. If you pull in here and wait for pizza, um, you're going to be sitting here for 45 minutes. Uh, they, you, know, you call in, you, then you get a number. You, you order what you want, and they give you a number. And we're number 74. Patsy's used to be a DiCarlo's. Galdo DiCarlo originally opened this shop before turning over the reins to employee Pasquale Vespa. Patsy for short. The family did that sometimes. But these franchise agreements weren't as heavy-handed as you might see with a national fast food chain today. Owners like Patsy had the freedom to make small tweaks where they saw fit. Patsy's is different. Uh, the sauce is different. The cheese is kind of like crumbled instead of grated like long slices. <laughs> uh, and the, the sauce is spicier. It's got a green pepper kind of kick to it. And the crust is airy thin most of the time and very crispy and yes yeah it's super thin that other voice is molly poffenberger she's originally from charleston but moved to wheeling after college scared me to death as a transplant i was like intimidated (laughs) by the whole thing because somebody was like this is what you have to do and there's no extra toppings like if you were to say can i get black olives or oh my gosh they would Blackball you. Yeah, that's the thing that's very different, too. The, the, it's, it's pepperoni cheese. Uh, in the last uh, 10 years, they 10 or 15 years, they've added uh, pepper rings that you can get on the side in a bag. and you can put. There's a reason uh, so little has changed, cold. as employee Erica Mitchum told me. It's, you know, you don't fix it if it's not broke, you know? As far as fresh pizza, I mean, I would say we're... Kind of toward, like, number one, because we don't box it. We don't prepare it until you get here. So it's not like it sits on the oven. Now, Patrick, being a seasoned Patsy's veteran, had a suggestion to make the pizza taste even fresher. can't see it on the radio, but there you go. You can see the turret. It's crumbly. He got a plastic bag of extra cheese to sprinkle on top. Okay, so sometimes it comes with a lot of cheese, sometimes it doesn't. It kind of depends on who's working. And I feel like when you pick it up, a lot of the cheese can fall off. So. I will say the um, the cold added cold cheese and cold pepperoni. We add something to it. It does. Now, by this point, I'd eaten pizza for both lunch and dinner, and I still had one more stop on my tour, the DiCarlo's in Wellsburg, West Virginia. I came here at the suggestion of my friend Candace Nelson. You might know her as the author of the West Virginia Pepperoni Roll book. But she's also a Wellsburg native and a die-hard fan of the DiCarlo's up here. You know, growing up, DiCarlo's for us was a treat. There's something about knowing on payday you got to go to the DiCarlo's, and even if you had to wait for an hour, it was worth it because, you know, when you get home, you have the best tasting pizza that you're going to have until the next time you can afford this special treat. When I arrived, I found Mark Vaughn work in the ovens, just like he has for the last 20 years. He told me this is one of the most traditional to Carlos, originally opened by Galdo himself back in the day before it was taken over by current owner Tim Morris. Yeah, same oven. Everything's pretty much the same. A couple updates here and there, paint jobs and whatnot, but... 
By this point in the day, I'd eaten a slice of pizza for almost every hour I'd been awake. So this time I just ordered one. What's the best way to order a slice? What's your favorite? My favorite, extra cheese and mushrooms. Can I get one of those? I ate it in what's apparently the customary way. Standing in the parking lot, box on the trunk. And it was crispy and cheesy and chewy. The mushrooms lended some extra flavor and texture. It was delicious, just like all the other pizza I'd had that day. Now, I'm not trying to cop out here. Each of the three locations I visited did have subtle differences, but I I don't think I can say one is better than the other. Let's say Ohio Valley Pizza does go national. When they get that first DiCarlo's in Sioux Falls or Pensacola, pizza lovers are going to rave over that crispy crust, the tangy tomato sauce, the cold cheese. They won't know whether they got the downtown version or the Elm Grove version or the Wellsburg version. Maybe a few of them will be inspired to trace this pizza back to its source, and that's when they'll discover all that nuance that the people of the Ohio Valley, the true connoisseurs, have been debating for decades. Everybody else? They're just going to be happy they got a darn good pizza. From the cold cheese pizza capital of the world, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Just a note on Dean Martin, whose famous song, That's Amore, we're hearing. Martin was born and grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, which falls within Appalachia. It's also less than an hour from Wheeling. So there's a not zero chance that when Dean Martin sang That's Amore, he was picturing DiCarlo's. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Mary Hot, Josh Woodward, the Hillbilly Gypsies, and Dean Martin. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.